0: For our scripture reading this morning, we turn to Isaiah, chapter 59, Isaiah 59. This chapter is part of a rather lengthy rebuke by the prophet of Israel's life, and especially in the previous chapter, their worship, their worship of God by fasting and observance of the Sabbath was non-existent or hypocritical. And he continues that reproving of the nation, leading, of course, to their one hope and deliverance, the Redeemer, the Redeemer out of Zion. Let's read Isaiah 59. Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, neither his ear heavy that it cannot hear. But your iniquities have separated between you and your God, and your sins have hid his face from you that he will not hear. For your hands are defiled with blood, and your fingers with iniquity, your lips Have spoken lies, your tongue hath muttered perverseness. None calleth for justice, nor any pleadeth for truth. They trust in vanity and speak lies, they conceive mischief and bring forth iniquity, they hatch cockatrice eggs and weave the spider's web. He that eateth of their eggs dieth, and that which is crushed breaketh out into a viper. Their webs shall not become garments, neither shall they cover themselves with their works. Their works are works of iniquity, and the act of violence is in their hands. Their feet run to evil, and they make haste to shed innocent blood. Their thoughts are thoughts of iniquity. Wasting and destruction are in their paths. The way of peace they know not, and there is no judgment in their goings. They have made them crooked paths. Whosoever goeth therein shall not know peace. Therefore is judgment far from us, neither doth justice overtake us. We wait for light, but behold obscurity. For brightness, but we walk in darkness. We grope for the wall like the blind, and we grope as if we had no eyes. We stumble at noonday as in the night. We are in desolate places as dead men. We roar all like bears and mourn sore like doves. We look for judgment, but there is none, for salvation, but it is far off from us. For our transgressions are multiplied before thee, and our sins testify against us. For our transgressions are with us, and as for our iniquities, we know them in transgressing and lying against the Lord, and departing away from our God, speaking oppression and revolt, conceiving and uttering from the heart words of falsehood, and judgment is turned away backward, and justice standeth afar off. For truth is fallen in the street, and equity cannot enter. Yea, truth faileth, and he that departeth from evil maketh himself a prey. And the Lord saw it, and it displeased him that there was no judgment. And he saw that there was no man, and wondered that there was no intercessor. Therefore his arm brought salvation unto him, and his righteousness... It sustained him, for he put on righteousness as a breastplate, and a helmet of salvation upon his head, and he put on the garments of vengeance for clothing, and was clad with zeal as a cloak. According to their deeds, accordingly he will repay, fury to his adversaries, recompense to his enemies, to the islands he will repay recompense. So shall they fear the name of the Lord from the west and his glory from the rising of the sun. When the enemy shall come in like a flood, the Spirit of the Lord shall lift up a standard against him and the Redeemer shall come to Zion." And unto them that turn from transgression in Jacob, saith the Lord. As for me, this is my covenant with them, saith the Lord. My spirit that is upon thee, and my words which I have put in thy mouth, shall not depart out of thy mouth nor out of thy mouth of the of thy seed nor out of the mouth of thy seed's seed saith the lord from henceforth and forever in connection with that word of god we consider this morning lord's day 4 Doth not God then do injustice to man by requiring from him in his law that which he cannot perform? Not at all. For God made man capable of performing it, but man, by the instigation of the devil and his own willful disobedience, deprived himself and all his posterity of those divine gifts. Will God suffer such disobedience and rebellion to go unpunished? By no means, but is terribly displeased with our original as well as actual sins, and will punish them in his just judgment, temporally and eternally, as he hath declared, cursed, is every one that continueth not in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them. Is not God then also merciful? God is indeed merciful, but also just. Therefore His justice requires that sin, which is committed against the Most High Majesty of God, be also punished with extreme, that is, with everlasting punishment of body and soul. Beloved in our Lord Jesus Christ, to fully benefit from the comfort of the Word of God that's found here in Lord's Day 4, it's very important to understand What really is going on? The temptation is to look at the instruction here in Lord's Day 4 and simply think that it's asking a bunch of disconnected questions that really aren't to the point, or perhaps at best simply tell us some facts about God that we already know and therefore say to ourselves that this is perhaps some instruction in the Lord's Day we really don't need to hear or perhaps to look at what's brought up here in this Lord's Day and imagine to ourselves that these are silly questions who would ever ask such a thing the reality is exactly the opposite this Lord's Day is a very very important and significant Lord's Day And in fact, one may see this Lord's Day as really a fulfillment of what we've read in the last part of Isaiah 59, where the Lord says, as part of His covenant promise, that His words, His word will not depart from the mouth not only of the Redeemer, but those who trust in Him. And He makes clear that that word that shall not depart from their mouth concerns God's righteousness. A great error in the church has in our day carried away much of the church. Much of the church much as Israel did in the Old Testament, regularly worships God with their sacrifices and with their observances on the Sabbath day. They greatly praise the name of God and lift His name up on high with much song, but in fact deny Him. And deny Him Remarkably, even as should be impossible when one is worshiping God through our Lord Jesus Christ because what is being denied both practically and theologically is the great, great perfection of God's righteousness. And that is a great, Great temptation to us to point at rightly the cross of Jesus Christ and show therein is the love of God and to extol the love of God and that great, great virtue of God's love that undergirds the covenant and all of our salvation, but to do so in such a way that we either obscure or deny God's righteousness and that may not be done that may not be done it cannot be done really because one cannot have one without the other and this Lord's Day addresses that issue the questions it raises are our questions they're the kinds of questions that we ask all the time in one way or another you will see these same questions really raised by your own children when you bring up the issue of their sin. You will hear these same questions being asked by one another when we confront either one another or even ourselves with regard to our sin. Here we stand before the cross of Christ. Here we confess a Christ who forgives all of our sins. And yet, and yet there's something in us that will deny God's righteousness that will impugn God's righteousness to escape really the reality of our sins that we ought to confess that they may be forgiven in the cross of Christ you see the way of salvation is the way of confession what Jesus forgives is our sins And when one is denying his sins by impugning God's righteousness, he's not only not confessing his sins, but he's blaming God for them. That's what's going on here. The catechism is confronting us with the very questions that we ourselves raise in one way or another regarding the righteousness of God. And so that's a theme we're trying to capture. A righteous misery... Is the theme a righteous misery? And we notice first the righteous God, secondly, his righteous judgment, and finally, a righteous mercy. So, how often do we think about God's righteousness? Probably more often than we want to admit but we probably don't recognize it either because often we're doing exactly what the Apostle Paul says, the ungodly do. That part of the great, great wickedness whereby the whole world is convicted before God, all men, Doesn't matter who they are or where they are found. Doesn't matter whether they came into contact with the Holy Gospel and rejected it or not. All men are guilty before God because there is one thing that God reveals to all men. They all can see it. They all know about it. And that is His righteousness. Righteousness. That God is a righteous God and as a part of His righteousness, He punishes sin with what it deserves. And every single human being knows this. That's part of what we learned earlier. When we learned that our misery is learned out of the law of God. I made a distinction there about what we learn and what all men learn about their misery, an important one. What we're learning is the learning of faith. The learning whereby, when one knows and is informed, it turns to Jesus Christ for the solution, turns and trusts in Jesus Christ. Nevertheless, We also learned that all men know about God and thus their misery from the law of God and it really makes no difference where that law is revealed. Whether that law of God is revealed in the Ten Commandments of the Word of God which is given to us to God's people was given to his old testament people or that law as it's found in the hearts of men as it's stamped there as it were by God himself in the conscience which we learned the apostle Paul pointed to and gave as a proof that there is such a word of God his law about what's right and what's wrong. The proof being that men accuse other men on the basis of that testimony. A man may accuse another of the very same thing that he does. He accuses his neighbor of doing wrong. But he himself does it. Now, why point that out? Because you understand that it's impossible possible really to know such things without knowing the righteousness of God part of the point of the apostle back in Romans is what therefore is revealed in the law is the righteousness of God it's not that it reveals our misery as such the law doesn't say anything about your misery It's simply a number of do's and don'ts. It simply speaks about how you're to behave toward God and your neighbor. It doesn't say you're miserable. Yet we we learned we know our misery from that. Well, how can that be? The answer is because the law teaches us righteousness. The law is the Word of God. And that Word of God isn't arbitrary. That Word of God which is His law, that which sets forth this is what you must do and this is what you must not do, aren't simply things that God thought about and thought would be a good idea to impose upon us in order to regulate our life for some benefit or other. Now truly, when one follows the Word of God, there is benefit and blessedness because God sets forth those things that are real and true that one cannot violate without consequences. When one worships idols instead of the one true God, then in a time of trouble, those idols cannot save. They simply can't. But those commandments and the law of God is a reflection of who God is, the reality of God, and particularly now the righteousness of God and the related virtues of, for example, His holiness, very closely related virtues with regard to God. They reveal those. And not only do they reveal those, but they reveal those as fundamental and basic to God. God can no more be unrighteous and unholy than He could be God. To be God is to be those things. And we must understand that they belong to the glory and the goodness of God. These are desirable qualities in God not only necessary but desirable God glories in his righteousness and in his holiness and the catechism recognizes that part of our depravity part of our being prone to hate God and his and our neighbor is that we also are prone to hate God's righteousness Part of our sin and our sinfulness is we easily deny the righteousness of God. And even when confronted by our sin, there's a temptation to deny the righteousness of God. To set it aside. To consider it as something unimportant. That's why it's so, so easy for us to emphasize the love of God. But, and that's not a bad thing, it's too bad that we often have to be reactive to that word because the false church has so misused that term, redefined it so that the love of God that they preach is nothing like the real love of God But the real issue there is what we are prone to which is to have a love of God that's exclusive and depart from His righteousness. Oh, how easily we remind one another that we have to love one another and we have to be loving people. And we have to deal with one another in love. But often it's always in such a way that we turn away from sin. We We don't We don't want to acknowledge the sin in ourselves or in others. We don't want to deal with the sin. Our love is the kind of love that just simply overlooks and excuses sin. And this is what this Lord's Day is getting at. We have to think about God in terms of the pictures that we have. To have some understanding of this. In fact, we have to see that the love of God and the righteousness and the holiness of God, justice, which is mentioned here in the Lord's Day, are all connected. You cannot disconnect them. You cannot have one without the other. And the pictures, for example, that we have are, let's take a fire. God is like a fire. Now, of course, what a fire is burning down your house, we don't want fire. We don't like fire. Fire's a bad thing. But no, the problem is not the fire. The problem is that the fire is in your house. Fire is a wonderful, wonderful thing. Where would mankind be without fire? You wouldn't have any heat in your homes. You would quickly freeze to death in the winter. Think what fire consumes. Think of all the valuable things that it does. And now realize that fire cannot have any of those good qualities. It cannot give off light and heat. It cannot burn up things that need to be burned like refuse and waste, except it have the qualities of a fire. It has to burn. That's somewhat like the righteousness of God. To have a God who is unrighteous or has no righteousness is like a fire that doesn't burn. And there's no heat, there's no warmth, there's no light, there's nothing. And pretty soon everyone's dead and the waste piles up. Or look at the sun. What can exist without the sun? What can there be without the sun? And can you have a sun without that burning fire? Can you have the light, the light by which we see, the light that causes the trees and the plants to grow? Can you have any of that without that burning purity, that amazing, amazing process by which the sun does what it does? Without that, you don't have a sun. All you have is a big glob of something. That's what we need to be reminded of when it comes to God. We tend to like righteousness and justice when it applies to others, we don't like it applied to ourselves. We can stand up and scream for justice and righteousness and holiness and sancti- sanctification and all these things in others, but not ourselves. We like the idea of a God of love who forgives God of love who loves us with an everlasting unbreakable bond of love but not a righteous God who so loves us you see and if you doubt me on that simply ask yourself if you recognize yourself in any of these questions now look at the first question not God then do injustice to man by requiring from Him and His law that which He cannot perform? And all of us cry out with a catechism, of course not. Not at all. Not at all. God didn't do injustice to man. Who would say such a silly thing? Why? Those people out there. I can imagine them saying it. I can imagine the heathen man to whom the gospel comes there's the missionary preacher preaching the gospel. And this word of God comes to the heathen, and the heathen says, Nah, that sounds like an unfair God. He has this law, and this law is unachievable. It's unattainable. Who can keep that law? Who can follow that law? Therefore, God is unjust. He's unrighteous. Now, it's true. I doubt any of us would ever make that argument. At least that blunt. But you understand what our fathers are getting at. We make that argument anyway. That's what makes it so bad. We know it's not. We know it's not true. We know what the truth of the matter is. We confess this in the Heidelberg Catechism, and yet we make it all the time. comes out in the words, I can't help it. Can't help it. You, sir, have a drinking problem. That drinking problem is destroying your home and your family. I can't help it. You, sir, have a greed problem. You spend all your time chasing the almighty dollar. You give very little time to the church. Very little time to God. It's all about you and your money. I can't help it. You, sir, are a workaholic. You spend all your time at work. Work, 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 work. Very little time for your, for your family and your wife and your children, yeah, I can't help it. That's who I am. Now, what's the difference between those two things—the question of the Heidelberg Catechism or the answer of "I can't help it"? They're no different. "I can't help it" basically means I was born this way. Oh, I know, I know, I know. I was I was born depraved. I know, I know. I believe what the Catechism says that God God made me perfect in Adam. He made us perfect. But nevertheless, Adam fell. And so I was born with this. I was born this way. In my family, we have a predisposition to alcohol. It's a real problem in my family. And I'm just kind of wound up. I've got to work. I've got to work. If I, don't, if I don't work, I get into trouble. You know, money's not a bad thing. We're supposed to lay up money for our, our kids. We're supposed to leave an inheritance. You see, they're no different. The fact that the worst one is actually the last one. At least the, the first question the, catech- the catechism asks is talking about Adam. And it's reminding us of how we were created in man fell. The, the excuse, I can't help it, is really blaming God for our depravity. It goes further. It says, I'm I'm this way because I'm, I'm born depraved. And that's God's fault too. It ignores the reality that depravity, that great, great misery of our sin and sinfulness is not the just judgment of God. That wasn't fair of God. That wasn't right of God. To impute all that to all men that are in Adam, that's not fair. That's not right. And so much is it not fair and right that I have... A good excuse. A good excuse. I'm trying. I'm trying to do better. I'm making some, some progress. Now why do we bring up that excuse? Again, again it, it, it's a very righteous argument in our eyes. But no, it's not. It's an unrighteous God. It's an unrighteous argument that impugns the righteousness of God again. What's the problem with the first one that was raised? It blames God. The "I'm making progress" argument is t- it's just more the same. It, it's saying you, 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 you have no right to talk about my sins and my sinfulness because my progress should count for something. I made some steps, some positive steps. They should count for something. You, you have no right to, to say that that's still sinful. Or at least you should keep your mouth shut. Again, what's the problem with that? that that's directed right at God again. It's, it's really not directed at the person that's talking to you. Perhaps your wife or a good friend. But it's directed right at God. It's basically saying to God, you, and you should accept such things too. How, how dare you come to me? God, and say thou shalt and thou shalt not. Uh, I'm making some good progress. Uh, I could come up with a lot more. And often you'll hear them if you do not hear them in your own soul, in your children. Or if you do have a righteous bone in your body, and you bring them up to your neighbor, you'll hear them then. These are all the excuses that we give. We don't think anything of them. We can go ahead and point our finger at the heathen and say, what a fool. What a fool to say there is no God. What a fool to turn from God and serve idols. And we do the same thing. You see, there can be no repentance without understanding the righteousness of God. And you will never understand the righteousness of God unless you see Jesus Christ. And the Gospel of the Catechism is, and if you know Jesus Christ, really know Him, then you will not be making those excuses. You can't. You won't. Because all of those are not attacks on God only, but on Jesus Christ. Every single one of those arguments basically is an attack on Jesus Christ and says, you're unnecessary. There's another way. That's what they say. You see, if you want to know anything about the righteousness of God, you have to go to Christ. And then you really see you can got to imagine what is true and think about it for a while. Yes, God loved us with an everlasting love, an eternal love, which love explains Christ. It's the love of God that explains His sending Christ to rescue us from our sins. such is the love of God. But understand, it's the righteousness of God that also explains it. Such is God's righteousness that His love for us, God couldn't just simply say, Well, your sins are forgiven. Why just forgive you? That's what we do. Why just forgive you? That's sin. We may just forgive one another. There's only forgiveness in Christ. If you want to know what God really thinks about sin, consider Christ. This is His own Son, not a son He's just had for a few years like our sons. Not a son that's simply born of his flesh, like our sons, and whom we dearly, dearly love. But when you understand God imputed to him our sin, God did that because he's a righteous God. And then God punished him with the punishment that he deserved, even though he was his son. Think about all the excuses we make for one another because, well, the Christians, right? Right? Why? We're going to overlook that sin over there because they're so-and-so. They're an important member of the church. Or, she's such a wonderful woman. Or, well, that's my son. We're we're not going to really do anything about this sin. As a mother, I'm not going to discipline it. I'm not going to bring it to my children and say, you may do that. You may behave that way. And why do we do that? Is it because we don't know it's wrong? We don't know that this is wrong before God even? No, it's not the problem. The problem is we don't care. Because we really don't care about the righteousness of God. And we love our son, or we love our friend, or we love that man in the church more than we love God. That's really the problem. We made an idol out of them. But that's not God. I can assure you God loves His Son much more than you love your Son. And God loves Jesus Christ a lot more than you love your best friend. But when Jesus became guilty for our sin, He poured on Him everything that that sin deserved. That's righteousness. And now you and I come along. This is, this is what makes it so wicked. Here's our sin. That its sin shouldn't be in dispute In fact, that should be our default position. Even if we do the most holy thing in all the world, someone comes along and says that sin. Our default position really ought to be, yeah, you're right, it is. (laughs) It is. I was praying. And um, if I look back on my prayer, I, I certainly sinned in that. But no, that's not who we are. And that should be our default position, not only because we know these things intellectually, but our response should really be, I'm so glad you pointed that sin out because now I can bring it to Jesus and He can forgive it. Right? How do you get rid of sin? How, do you, how are you released from sin and shame and all that? You bring it to Christ, right? But no, no, no. We're going to go to a defense of our sin. And we're going to appeal to all kinds of things. And we'll do this impugning, And robbing God of all the glory of His righteousness. That's who we are. That's what's behind all this. And it even continues with regard to the sin itself and what it deserves. That's the idea of the second question. Will God suffer such disobedience and rebellion to go unpunished? Why is it asked that question? And the answer is because it is in our nature to imagine the exact opposite than the answer. We sin. And we shrug our shoulders. And when it gets really bad in Israel, like at the time of the prophet, then there can be huge, unbelievable sins. The kinds of sins that make the world even ashamed. And we're we're kind of like this. So? And we offer up all the same excuses again. But really, this is the excuse that's behind we'll just forgive them. Or just forgive me. It's a form of, well, God's not going to punish me for this sin, so you shouldn't. there shouldn't be any punishment for this sin by the state. There shouldn't be any punishment for this sin by the, the church. And if you follow that logic and you look at that thinking, you'll find out that that's the very thinking about God in the everlasting judgment too. We act as if God will never even bring these things up. The part of my deliverance and my salvation is that God really doesn't see my sin and God really doesn't think much of my sin. I can sin and it doesn't even make him angry. He loves me. God don't get angry at my sins. When I stand in the judgment, they're not even going to be brought up. They're going to remain hidden. And I can see where God would certainly judge some people with eternal hell but not me. That's not what I deserve. My sins aren't like their sins. That's all forms of, yes, God is not going to punish my sins with what they deserve. And, and here's the thing the catechism really doesn't talk about, but I'm going to bring it up. But this is all why when we adopt that thinking without repudiating it, without rejecting it, we soon find ourselves living in sin. You ask yourself, how can that be? How can that be a child of God who knows God? Because it's talking about someone who knows God. How can it be that someone knows God, knows the righteousness of God and knows these things even in the truth of Jesus Christ and then goes and lives in sin? Yes. well, how can that be? It, it starts here. It's a slow process, but it starts here, basically, with the things that well, God's not going to punish my sin with what it deserves. And what it leads to is even ingratitude for Christ. You see, if you don't think your sins really deserve what they really deserve, then Christ hasn't forgiven you much, has He? Then Christ really hasn't borne much for you. He's maybe borne a lot for other people, but not for me. And the life of ingratitude is the life of wickedness. Wickedness is ingratitude. You see how practical this can be. It's why it doesn't take long where that sets hold in the church, and pretty soon the church is even denying the reality of hell. You ask, how does that happen? How does a church go from the confession of the Heidelberg Catechism to there? And the answer is, don't really believe it. It's a matter of words. But it doesn't start with the church as a whole. It starts in the individual heart. starts in the congregation. It spreads like a cancer. Pretty soon everybody is infected with that thinking. That the main thing in the church is really to deny your sin. To hide your sin. To excuse your sin. Never considering of what you're really saying about God and His righteousness and what a God without righteousness really would be. No. Cursed. Cursed is every single person. Cursed is you. Cursed is me. Not only cursed because we've sinned against God, but even after we know better, we don't continue in the things that the law requires of us. Cursed because I really don't think much of it either. I just take it for information, shrug my shoulders and say, well, so what? And it shows. Assuming someone says, you sinner, I don't go to Christ. I don't say, yeah, you're right. One last try. And this is the one that gets us. Is not God merciful? Speaking frankly, beloved... This is the one that gets us. Well, the other two, when the word of the Heidelberg Catechism comes, it pierces your soul and you say, yep, that's me. I can't help it. I try really hard. My sins don't deserve that. They're not that bad. Is not God merciful? Is not God love? Do you understand how wicked that is? Because what we mean by that is terrible. Now, first of all, let's establish that this is indeed what we think. And again, this is not the attitude of the ungodly. This is the attitude of those who know God and know something about God and know something about the mercy of God who knows something about how God treasures mercy and could give many, many examples of God's mercy. They can cite all the texts in Scripture about God's mercy. All the examples of it. All the parables about it. Seventy times seven is words that are emblazoned in their head. But live without a real understanding of God's mercy. Where it comes out, is when they chastise others for not forgiving. You're unforgiving. You're hard-hearted and cruel. Why can't you forgive that person? We should just forgive and forget. Just forget the whole thing. Let's let bygones be bygones. Can't you see they're sorry? we got a million ways of asking the same question. And it's wicked. Because we do not want a righteous mercy what we want is human mercy what we want is what parades as mercy and grace but in fact is cruel beyond belief we want a mercy of god and therefore mercy in others that comes some other way than god's righteousness you see we want a mercy that we deserve why That person deserves mercy. Look at them. They're trying so hard. They're doing all the right things. They deserve a little mercy. Why can't God be merciful to me? Why can't God just allow me to live this way and and just ignore that? Because look at everything else I do. Why can't you just forgive that person? You know they're sorry. You just know it. Why can't you just show a little mercy? They, they're trying. Do you understand that God's mercy cannot, cannot go against His righteousness? And that in order even to show mercy, God had to do what He did to His Son. And now you and I want to come along and just forget it. Oh, somehow very deviously we can try to tie it to the cross. Oh no, I, I, mean, I mean grace. But no, we don't. Hidden in our heart. Hidden deep in our soul. As we want forgiveness. The good old fashioned way of earning it. Or impugning God's righteousness. And every time we have to be reminded. But you're saying something about God. If that's what I may do, then that's what God may do. And then you don't have mercy, do you? Do you understand? You only have mercy. Grace is only grace and mercy is only mercy when you have something that's deserved. I.e., the judgment and wrath of God. If forgiveness is just simply forgetting and acting like it really wasn't sin, then you have no mercy because then the mercy of God is of such a character. It all comes down, beloved, to the righteousness of God. That last question is so important. It cuts through all, it really cuts to our own heart because we, we are people who preach the sovereign grace of God, the particular grace, the wonderful grace and mercy of God. But so often in our own dealing with sin, our own sin, it's not real mercy or grace that's in our heart. It's a merited favor. It's something we earn or it's something that's just given to all. And what does that say about God? So remember what the catechism is doing here. It's bringing us back to God. Because it's all about Him. Him. Our sin and our response to it concerns Him. And more importantly, concerns His Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Let us pray. Our Father which art in heaven, O Lord, forgive our sins and their excuses. Work repentance in us. True repentance which confesses sin which admits sin, which confesses what we deserve without excuse, without blame shifting, without justifying, all which is simply more sin against thee, our God. We pray for this, that we may confess our sins and find real, genuine mercy and grace in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ